This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McCray. It's a Christmas special with two stories I think you'll find very interesting. First, I'll show you how a town and a family wound up becoming known as the residence of the Santa Claus. In fact, if you address a letter to Santa at the North Pole, chances are the letter is coming here. And in the second half of the show, I'll take you to the northernmost town in the country, a place that won't see the sun for about two months each winter. Those are our topics for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. When it comes to using nitrogen on my corn, the more predictable, the better. That's why I've used Pivot Bio Proven 40 on my corn for the past two seasons. With Pivot Bio, I know my crops are getting the nitrogen they need, no matter the weather. And now that same predictability is available right on the corn seed. Pivot Bio Proven 40 on seed gives growers even more flexibility with their nitrogen plant. In these times of rising input prices, it's great to know that you have an affordable way to have proven nitrogen on the seed. To learn more, contact your local sales rep or just go to pivotbio.com. Where do you find Santa Claus? At the North Pole, of course. And during this Christmas season, what better place to visit than North Pole, Alaska? This is the story of a family who, somewhat by accident, became associated with Christmas and the destination of many letters to Santa himself. I sat down with one of the family members, Paul Brown, at the Santa Claus House in North Pole, Alaska, to learn the story of a family and a town that has Christmas spirit 365 days a year. Take me back to, uh, believe, the 1950s when uh, be some of your in-laws first came here, and, and I don't think they were setting out to become Santa Claus, but it turned out they did. It was, it's actually a really funny story. So um, Con and Nellie Miller, who are the founders of Santa Claus House, they arrived in Alaska actually in 1949, shortly after World War II, and Con was kind of looking for adventure. He had just recently gotten out of the military. They wanted to do something different. Alaska was kind of the, the new cool thing tail end of the 40s, early 50s, having been opened up with Alcan Highway construction in World War II. So they kind of moved up here on a whim, almost as an adventure. And Khan actually promised Nellie that they would only stay five years. So they arrived in in interior Alaska in 1949 and uh, opened up kind of a a clothing store in in, uh, Fairbanks area. And, you know, did that for a little while. Um, The store itself didn't do too well, but Khan became kind of a merchant and fur buyer. So he would travel to some of the surrounding villages a lot of Alaska's off the road system, so it was a situation where he would have to fly in, and he would be, you know, merchant and fur buying and things of that sort. Well, one one year, he uh, or one day, I should say, he found a, an old Santa suit in an inventory that he had bought, kind of a closeout inventory from one of the other stores. So, kind of his his nature or his shtick, I guess, he would dress up as Santa Claus when he was traveling to the villages. And he was kind of the first Santa Claus that a lot of the village children in Alaska had ever seen. So he kind of got the reputation as being Santa Claus. So the merchant and fur buying and traveling and things like that got a little tiresome to him. So they moved to the area, which at the time was not North Pole. It was just kind of the outskirts of Fairbanks, way, way outskirts of Fairbanks. He decided to build a trading post in, in the 
uh, North Hall area. And one day while he was building the trading post, there were some of the village kids that had known him as Santa Claus. They drove by and they called out, hello, Santa Claus, are you building a house? Hence the name Santa Claus House. So it, it really started, Santa Claus House really started out as kind of a trading post. It was a general store, soda fountain, things like that. It was more focused on kind of the, because North Pole was so far out of Fairbanks, it, it became kind of the gathering area, you know, again, general supplies and things like that for locals. And then, you know, over the years, as Eielson Air Force Base built up outside of the North Pole area in Fort Wainwright, you had quite a few more military people coming in and out. You had a lot more uh, Alaska highway traffic. So it kind of took on a kind of a tourism-oriented focus. There were a lot of visitors, a lot of, you know, new airmen to Eielson thought it was really cool. They would send things to friends and family back home that came from North Pole. You know, you had a lot more traffic on the Alaska Highway as it got developed a little more for tourism traffic. So it really grew and changed over the course of probably late 50s, early 60s. It grew into more of a tourism-oriented focus, more of a general kind of a gift store more than a general store. So. The, the town of North Pole had been here before. Is there any reason behind the name of North Pole, uh, Alaska? Sure. It's actually it's kind of an interesting story, and it's hard to pinpoint the exact true story but you know a couple of the different stories that are going around is north pole at the time that Connelly moved out here was not called north pole there was another uh, gentleman in the area that had a homesteaded um, named bond davis so it was known as the davis subdivision or the davis homestead davis siding the railroad came through at the same right around the same time so it was kind of davis crossing is one of the names and bond davis didn't really care I guess, for being known for the entire town. He just wanted to do his thing and go on his way. So there were conversations at the time with some of the early families about what should we call the area, you know, what's a good name for the area. And, you know, names were tossed around like Mosquito Junction and some, you know, some other Alaskan-type names. And, um, you know, there was conversation about how can we attract industry to the area. Well, there was a development company that came up from somewhere in the States, I don't recall where, Dolongeski Development, and they were looking at buying large parcels of property, and they were also looking at how do we attract industry, you know, manufacturers and things like that. And somewhere in the course of the conversation, one of the reasons, the legend is one of the reasons it was called North Pole is it was consistently colder than anywhere else in the interior. So, if you, you know, if you look at weather data, we're usually 7 to 10 degrees colder than even Fairbanks, which is only 15 miles away. So the North Pole name kind of stuck. Dahl and Gasky, the development corporation, liked the idea. Um, Khan obviously liked the idea because he was known as Santa Claus. So the store, Santa Claus House was actually incorporated in 1952, which is before North Pole even became North Pole. And then, you know, the conversations were happening in January of 1953. Khan actually hand-delivered the paperwork to Juneau, the capital of, at the time, the territory of Alaska. He delivered the paperwork for incorporation to incorporate it as North Pole. And the thought process, obviously he had his own reasons for it, but the thought process with Dolongaski Development Corporation is that you could attract toy manufacturers up here. You know, toy manufacturers would love to have products that were made in North Pole. How cool is that? Unfortunately, that never really took off. There, there's quite a bit of burden to enter or barriers to entry for manufacturers in Alaska just because of shipping costs and high costs of goods and things like that. But it worked out good for Khan's reasons with Santa Claus House. So, But somewhat by accident, really. It, it really was. It was kind of by accident. You know, and there were conversations in the 50s. Obviously, it didn't happen until the later 50s when um, Disneyland was developed. But there was kind of a movement even before Disneyland happened. Down in the States, a lot of people were looking at North Pole and Santa Land and some of these different kind of ideas for themes. 
theme parks or amusement park amusement parks at the time and that was you know kind of the the thought process with north pole is that after the toy manufacturing didn't work out maybe we could work on getting a theme park or an amusement park or something like that like a santa land here in north pole um so that was kind of the direction that that everything was headed unfortunately with how far we are away from the continental u.s and all the tourism numbers we never got the numbers for that to fully flesh out but you know santa claus house is still here 60 years later sure well and over time then this transition from a trading post into something that's kind of christmas year round yeah it really is and as i mentioned you know we started out as a general trading post to kind of a more uh, tourism oriented and one of the things that we've been doing since the very beginning as i mentioned a lot of the airmen from isles and air force base would want to get cards and letters and things like that sent back to friends and family at christmas time from north pole so there was really you know con recognized an opportunity and one of the things we've done since the very beginning is our letters from santa that we do so you know your letters come from santa claus house in north pole alaska it became a really big product for him almost not to the exclusion but it was it was obviously a much bigger opportunity than just being a trading post for you know at the time a couple of hundred people um, you know, the tourism focus happened again as the Alcan was developed. So throughout the 60s and 70s, the letters from Santa really built up from that point, And it gave the letters from Santa, especially in the mail order business he, that he did, gave them the opportunity or the revenue generated enough revenue so that the Santa Claus house could be developed more. Um, you know, but while we're still primarily a gift shop, you can still visit Santa here all year round. We've got live reindeer outside that you can, you know, you can get in the pen and pet the reindeer and a lot of big, you know, um, photo opportunities and things of that sort outside that you can see. So it's it's more than just a gift shop. Sure. Do you have to continue to uh, update what happens at Santa Claus House or is Christmas so traditional that it remains a lot the same over the years? You know, a lot of it remains the same. And some of the things, especially, as I mentioned, the Santa letters that we do, one of the things that's great about our Santa letters is we have been doing them since the 1950s, since the very beginning. So generations of families have received these letters and we're very careful to keep it similar where, you know, when a, a granddaughter or a grandchild or grandson or, or whoever receives a letter, they can look at it and say, this is the same letter that my parents received, the same letter that my grandparents received 50, 40, 50, 60 years ago. So some of it we're very careful to protect the legacy. Um, as far as the store and the, and the property itself, obviously we want to do keep it fresh but it's you know it's really interesting to see and i know you had had come here years and years and years ago you see a lot of people that have come up here that were here 20 30 40 years ago and it really is it's i guess it's almost timeless i think you know the magic of christmas is it doesn't matter the age you are you get into the christmas spirit so we try to freshen up the product offering but the actual christmas holiday spirit itself we're very careful to protect what is Christmas itself like at Santa Claus House on Christmas here? It, it gets, as you can imagine, it gets pretty crazy around here. Um, you know, we don't, we don't get the summer tourism numbers that we get, but we do have a lot of local families. We've got an Army base and an Air Force base nearby, so you get a lot of visiting friends and family. Um, one of the opportunities for us is, is being so far from the continental U.S. or from, from the rest of the country, I guess, our our internet mail order business is a pretty big thing. So it's interesting the store while it's, or the business while it's crazy with people visiting, we're actually busier with our mail order and things of that sort, kind of spreading the Christmas joy around the world. You know, and, and I mentioned the letters from Santa and some of the product that we sell, we have sent it, sent letters to probably every country in the world. 
So it's uh, it's pretty crazy around here. A lot of it's behind the scenes that people don't typically see. Santa obviously has big lines of kids that are wanting to give them their wish list. So. Does it take quite a big staff to be able to handle all the letters because you do so many? It, it does. It takes a pretty, a pretty big staff. And as I mentioned, it's behind the scenes, so a lot of people don't see it. But, you know, we have a call center that's staffed seven days a week, and we have to match, you know, the time zones across the, actually across the world. So um, pretty big staff, pretty long hours. Um, one of the interesting things is that North Pole, Alaska, a lot of people wonder what happens to the letters that kids write that, are, that they just addressed to Santa Claus and put North Pole on there. And a big chunk of those, um, last number I heard was four to 500,000 letters, you know, on a little tiny town like North Pole, the population 2,200 people. That's uh, quite a burden on the Postal Service here. So, um, you know, a lot of those letters that kids write and just write Santa Claus North Pole will come to here to North Pole, Alaska. We get a lot of them here at the store, especially, you know, if kids write Santa Claus house or anything like that, that we'll, we'll forward them here. So we get a lot of incoming mail, too. And while Santa can't respond to every one of those letters, he actually will read every single letter that comes through the doors here that's written. Um, you know, and as I mentioned, parents parents can help Santa Claus respond to the letters from their children by getting on our website. Um, so that, you know, that definitely keeps us busy during the holiday season. We we really enjoy the holiday season, but we certainly look forward to January. You know, even though it's even though it's called here in North Pole, we refer to that as vacation time. So it's uh, it's pretty crazy. Well, and this is the one place where Santa Claus, you can see him 365 days a year. Is that right? You can. He's he's in the store during the kind of the peak of summer season, um, you know, the 100 days Memorial Day to Labor Day, and then again during the holiday season. And you'll see him running around North Pole just like a, a regular person. You know, you'll run into him at the grocery store or the post office. or that's. I think that's what a lot of the kids that live in North Pole really enjoy about is that they can run into Santa Claus at, at the post office or, you know, at the grocery store or out checking his mail. So it's it's pretty it's a unique place to live. Well, and I'm sure it's a unique uh, role being a part of this this family. You have quite a legacy that you continue to share with people around the world. It is. It's uh, you know I mentioned to you that that I married into the family and and it's uh, it's it's a really cool family business. And you know we're my wife is actually a third generation of the Miller family. My kids are seven and twelve now, and they help out around the store. So it's really kind of transitioning into the fourth generation. It really is a big legacy for a small town like North Pole. Um, it's a pretty major presence and has a pretty big impact on the North Pole area. In the second part of this week's show, we venture to the northernmost town in the U.S., Barrow, Alaska. The sun didn't rise in Barrow, Alaska on November 20th. After that date each year, they won't see it again for over two months. It's just part of life in a town on Alaska's Arctic coast, a place where the locals feel as if they'll sweat to death if the forecast were to hit the upper 60s. Phoebe Kippy is a lifelong resident of the town, and we talked about the weather, the schools, and the unique aspects of a place that has no trees because it's too far north and no road to civilization. You must fly or take a boat. Here's our conversation. People know that Barrow's way north, but tell them what it's like living here as far as how cold it gets, how warm it gets, the snow, and so forth, because I think people are fascinated just because it's so far north. Well, for one, we don't live in igloos, and we don't have dog teams. We do have homes made out of lumber. We do drive trucks and SUVs. The coldest temperature can be about minus 50, and the warmest winter temperature is like minus 15, if that's even any warmer. (laughs) You mentioned as far as snow, how long would you have snow on the ground here? About nine months out of the year. 
So what is summer like then? <laughs> the summer is kind of like a fall time weather. Um, most days it is cloudy, overcast. It may rain. Um, the warmest temperature we had this summer was about 68 degrees. The rest of the summer was in the 30s and 40s. It's one of those things where if you don't experience anything different, you don't. that's just what you expect, I guess. That's all. I've never seen anything over 70 above. And having been born and raised here, I don't know that I want to experience it because that 68 was as hot as the underworld. <laughs> <laughs> now tell people, because they may not realize this, you can't drive here. We cannot drive in or out. It is accessible by plane only. And you have some barges that come in the summer, some to deliver some bigger stuff, I guess. Yes, a lot of the lumber, some of the vehicles, some um, building equipment, they do come the end of July up until mid-August. Okay. What's it like in the summer? Because you have a lot of days where the sun never sets, is that right? Yes, it is um, like two months where the sun doesn't set at all. By then, you know, everybody, they stay awake all day because... Because it's typically a lot nicer 3 o'clock in the morning than it is at 3 p.m. But you can't hardly tell the difference between the two. Why is it nicer at 3 a.m.? I'm not sure. That's just how it is here. It's just nicer. The wind dies down. I mean, the birds are chirping. The birds can't tell the difference either. (laughs) (laughs) So then what's it like for the two months when you never see the sun? It's dark and it's cold and people get stir crazy. They get cabin fever. I don't really know any other different having been used to it. So there are times where we do miss the sun and we can't wait for it to rise. But it is what it is. Well, what do you do in the winter as far as do people have any activities or things that they do to keep them busy? And since they don't have the sun and you can't, it's cold and so forth. I mean, they still go to work. The children still go to school. I mean, life does continue. It's just dark. There are street lights and the moonlight, but no sunlight. Life just goes on. Tell me about going to school here. Did you play any sports where you had to travel or or not? I was not so much into sports, but everyone kind of pushed me to play basketball because I was one of the more taller girls in the class. Um, I did play basketball and volleyball for fun, but I wasn't ever on any teams. But the teams here, they have to fly to play the other teams? They do. The high school students, they do fly the basketball, football, volleyball team. They fly students in and out, and the local students fly in and out as well. Uh, I want to talk about a little bit about what goes on here with the families and, and whaling. Well, maybe you want to talk first about the tradition, because, I mean, that goes way back. And now, because it is a activity that's gone on here forever, you're still one of the few communities that's allowed to go out, out and, and hunt whales. There are several of the whaling communities, communities along the north of Alaska that are allowed to hunt. Um, the spring hunt is very traditional. We use the skin boats made from the bearded seals. The thread is made from the caribou tendons, and they sew the skins together, and about March they put them outside in the winter, and they sun dry and bleach until mid-April when the spring whale hunt starts. All right. And then 
the groups? Is it kind of family groups, or how do you describe as far as uh, you had a name for it? It's not a, a group, but what what are the groups in it? It's a whaling crew, and it is mostly consistent of family members, um, extended family. It may just be a very good friend of yours that enjoys the hunt as well. But mainly they are con- made out of the uh, family and extended family. All right. So like you mentioned, your in-laws, like how big, and you're part of that crew. So like how big a crew does your family, I guess, have then? We are one of the smaller whaling crews. Um, we have been actively whaling since 2009 for the spring and fall hunt. And... Um, we're not a very large crew, not compared to some of the other whaling crews around Barrow. I'd say we are one of the smallest whaling crews with about 20 people, 25 max would be my best guess. All right. So tell people then how does it work as far as trying to hunt a whale? Because it's a process. I mean, they've got to go out in the ice and everything you're telling us. Yes. They, the captain usually scouts out on the ice and he'll pick a spot and whatever the captain says goes. So he'll find a spot, whether it's up north or down south, and um, they start to break trail. It takes two to three weeks for them to break trail. They make a trail that is smooth enough to traverse over. And um, once they hold the whaling captain's ceremony at the church, that's when the whaling season starts. And then that crew will go out there and then sit on the... Are they look? Are the whales passing close enough then that they're seeing them from shore, or do they have to go out in a boat? They may have to um, go in the boat. Oftentimes they do. What they look for is the whales blow. It's the spout that they see, and if they see that, that's when they jump in the boat and they paddle their way to the whale. Oftentimes they are lucky enough where the whale comes close enough to the ice edge that they're able to strike the whale from the edge of the ice and they do not need to go in their boat. You you need to know what you're doing as far as harpooning a whale. <laughs> yes, you um the captain um has a lot of knowledge as well as his crewmates, but there is one designated person to harpoon the whale. They need to know the exact location where to harpoon the whale in order for that to be a successful hunt. And they have to be pretty strong as they may be throwing the harpoon 10, 15 feet away. So if they get one out there, then you go out there because you're part of the, the crew then that does all the butchering? Yes, I would go out there by snowmobile. All right. Tell people then there's a right size of whale that you want because uh, there's a difference in whales. Yes, the whales do travel in pods. Um, the mothers and the calves travel and then the older adults and then the elders. So there is what we call a butterball, just like a turkey would be nice, round, plump, and juicy. And that's the most ideal type of whale would be a 25-foot butterball, but... As the season starts to progress and we get in the mid-Mays, that's when the older whales start passing. That's when they're 48 up to 60 feet in length. And um, that me- that muck duck, which is the skin and the blubber, is a bit on the tougher, crunchier side rather than the smaller butterball, which is nice, plump, and juicy. Yeah. Then when you bring it back in here, there's a kind of a tradition that 
everybody's kind of invited. Is that right? Then you begin to serve some of that whale? After the whaling crew has um, prepared the captain's house, the women usually cut all the different portions of the whale, and they would then cut it and start cooking it. And they would um, put them in serving-sized portions, and the elder of the family would say grace over the radio, and the captain then invites everybody to get a serving-sized portion of the whale. So when that happens, like everybody, 4,000 people in Barrow all come to the captain's house? They sure do. They line up outside, and they grab their bag one by one. They say thanks. They say congratulations. They go home and eat the freshest dinner. Before we wind up, does it because you're doing tours, does it ever amaze you how many people want to come to your hometown? It is. I mean, there's people who are so amazed by our culture, by our town, and they expect to see igloos and dog teams, but what they see are buildings and vehicles and... There's so much water and tundra, and a lot of people are fascinated by the ocean. And to me, it's just water. I don't know what the big deal about the Arctic Ocean is. I mean, I did grow up around it, so that might be a difference. We get those few people that like to jump in the ocean, and I would never do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you said the only people that get in this ocean are tourists. Pretty much. The only people that jump in are the tourists. (laughs) Thanks for listening to our show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Just type in Farming the Countryside. We're always using those social media platforms to share more information during the week. And remember, you can hear these shows in a variety of ways as well. At FarmingTheCountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I'm Andrew McRae, and I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.